Are your clients asking about the employee retention credit, R&D tax credits, cost segregation, energy credits or deductions, or the work opportunity credit? Do you lack answers or expertise in your firm to serve these specialty tax incentives? Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor, TriMerit, later in the episode. If you'd like to earn CPE credit for listening to this episode, visit earmarkcpe.com, download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. Continuing education has never been so easy. And now, on to the episode. This is Oh My Fraud, a true crime podcast where the most common torture method is death by a thousand paper cuts. I'm Caleb Newquist. And I'm Greg Kite. Greg, sometimes we talk about ethics around here, and we have also taught a lot of ethics courses together. I mean, mostly it's you are in the role of teacher, and I am in the role of curious, annoyingly enthusiastic student, wouldn't you say? That is correct. And yeah. uh, it's funny. I actually looked back through my uh, my Google Drive and the, and I, I looked the very first time that I taught ethics for CPE was in October of 2013. So I've been teaching ethics for almost a decade now. Yeah. Um, and interestingly enough, the second time that I taught ethics was actually the first time that I ever did a web, like presented in webinar format. And okay. it was awful. It was unwatchably <laughs> awful. Uh, yeah. Because, because what I, what I realized and it took, I mean, I realized immediately that it was awful, but what I eventually realized is that, uh, and the reason it was awful is because if you're trying to be, funny that's the only that's the only like part of my resume that makes me interesting to anyone in our profession is that i do comedy but if just imagine but but you're just telling a joke in a room all by yourself to a webcam with absolutely no feedback and that that murders the humor uh, any like when you're doing that, every joke you try to tell is immediately transformed into like the worst dad joke, where it just looks like somebody desperately trying and failing at uh, entertaining people. But what I found out uh, eventually was the trick to that is having a co-presenter. Then all of a sudden, I'm not just telling jokes to no one; I'm telling jokes to at least one other person, and yeah. hopefully that person is receptive to it. And sometimes you are, and I appreciate that. That's nice. <laughs> but you're, but just to say your role as a, as the enthusiastically curious attendee is, is vital to the, yeah. to the success of the webinar. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I'm as a attendee as I am kind of like your Andy Richter or something like who just, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just chuckles yeah. along and, uh, and 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 sets you up at at particular places, but I do I try to I do try to bring the enthusiasm. I try to pepper you yeah. with questions. Um, you, well, yeah, and, and, you, and you absolutely do, and and I like it because also I'm so familiar with the topics that sometimes I think that I uh, like like my brain doesn't isn't thinking about it from someone who's not as familiar with the topic as I am, and so right. it's nice to have fresh ears to kind of go, wait a second. Say, explain what you just said. So that's yeah. that's also hugely valuable. 
ethics right wrong what <laughs> right yeah. we're supposed to be good wait explain that uh yeah <laughs> i'm not, lost me i'm not buying that in this profession yeah. yeah so which is kind of exciting we i bring all this up i guess is what i mean because today we're talking to michael schaub he is the clinical professor and deloitte professional program director professor whoo yeah. at the mays business school at texas a&m university and he teaches auditing and accounting ethics. And we had a great time talking to him, didn't we, Greg? Yeah, ab- absolutely. And uh, listeners, just to set your expectations correctly, I know you come to this podcast because you love the swears, but knowing that Dr. Schaub is a devout Christian out of respect and deference to him, we didn't swear not even a single time while we were talking to him. Not a single fucking time, Greg. I'm so proud of you. I'm proud of us. We did it. Yeah, it's we possible. did it. We can. We this could be a. We can do this could it. Could be a G-rated podcast. It, it, absolutely, it, except for the last line you just said. So, without right. further ado, here is our conversation with Dr. Michael Schaub. Mike Schaub, so nice to meet you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Real quick, just I'm always curious. Are you? I read a bunch of your uh, blog posts that were posted on the te- Texas A&M site. I'm assuming you're still, you're, you're a professor currently at Texas A&M. Is that correct? I am, Greg. Yeah, I'm still teaching here. I teach auditing and I teach accounting ethics here. And uh, yeah, I've been here for, this is my 17th year here. Nice. Where, where were you before that, just out of curiosity? Well, I've taught four other places. I came here from St. Mary's University in San Antonio immediately before, but I've I've taught both in the big research university and the small liberal arts setting, and uh, but have really enjoyed being here at A and M. Nice, and uh, just to uh, just to test my own my own trivia knowledge, uh, Texas A and M is in College Station, Texas. Is that right? It is. College Station is about ninety miles northwest of Houston. Well done. Okay, and uh, yeah, it's a campus of over seventy thousand. Yeah, it's a Greg, big old campus. I, I just have to note that in a previous episode uh, that was located, uh, a, a case study that we did that was located in Texas, we demonstrated some horrific Texas geography. And <laughs> yeah, we, I don't it's remember do. what, yeah, I mean, it's a big place. It was the fruitcake fraud. It was, it was Corsa, it was, it was Corsa, Corsa Canada, Canada, Texas. Sure. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah. We, yeah right the Collins Street Bakery. The Collins yeah. Street been, Bakery. Have you been there? Have you had their fruitcake? Uh, Yes, um, been to, through Corsicana many times, but uh, I guess driven by the Collins Street Bakery. But I think I've had the Collins Street Bakery fruitcake at some point in the past, though not a huge fruitcake fan. If I was going to go fruitcake, it would be Collins Street. <laughs> nice. This episode brought to you by Collins Street Bakery. If you'd like yeah. to order your Collins Street, <laughs> please go to collinsstreet.com backsplash yeah we remodeling a free ads home. free ads for fruitcake yeah so mike we like to we like to kind of get a sense of everybody's i don't know just their 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 whole their just the just leading up to like your work now but so just give a can you give us a brief synopsis of your life growing up like where did you grow up you know what uh, what did your parents do where'd you go to school things like that uh grew up in maryland and virginia born in baltimore so i'm a lifelong Oriole fan uh my dad was transferred from Virginia out to Houston, 
when I was in seventh grade, worked for an oil company. He was a research physicist. My mom stayed at home for the most part, did several mm-hmm. things, but mostly stayed at home. Five, one of five boys, graduated from high school in Houston, went to the University of Texas, got a degree in accounting, got married, been married 45 years to the world's most beautiful woman. Five kids, just had our ninth grandchild last week. Oh, wow. Um, so, so yeah, really rich life. Um, from Texas, I went into industry, thought I might even do campus ministry at one point, figured out quickly mm-hmm. I was neither gifted nor called to do that, and went back for my master's in oil and gas accounting, went out into big firm life, public accounting firm life, then back into industry as a controller for a commercial real estate company before I went back for my PhD. Got my PhD at Texas Tech, where I also got my master's. Mm-hmm. And then I started my academic career. So this is year 34 as an academic, uh, year 17 at A&M. Cool. Now, just a couple, one uh, silly question and one maybe, well, maybe they're both silly questions. But anyway, so born in Baltimore, but essentially the formative years in Texas. So do you, I like, do you cons- you're a tried and true Texan. Do you think of yourself that way or, or do you consider yeah, I your, li- I li- I'm a Texan. I'm a Texan. Yeah, yeah. I'm one of those got here as soon as I could type of people, but yeah, my heart, my heart still, if I walk into Camden yards or if I see orange and black or even the Orioles road uniform, that's really the song of my heart. So I'm an Orioles fan. Even when they're playing in Houston, I'm wearing, I'm wearing the bird's cap. I'm wearing, my jersey. I'm I'm an Orioles fan for life. So I have these root ties and kind of family feel to to Maryland. And I grew up in Richmond for a while too, and really enjoyed oh. that part of my childhood. Probably the happiest part of my childhood. So, um, but yeah, I'm a Texan. We came back to Texas in 2000 and have loved being here. Cool. So. Mike, interesting, interesting uh, parallels. Not having known your story, so I currently am a controller in industry for uh, commercial medical real estate. That's where I'm at right now. So I'm connecting with you on that. Also, I, I I'm interested. What campus ministry were you? Did you were you thinking about going for? Because I, at one point in a former life, I I almost uh, went on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ. Uh, for me, it was a group called the Navigators. Um, okay, but yes, certainly have lots of friends in various various of those ministries, and and still do. But yeah, I just wasn't designed for that as a vocation. Um, you know, right. I've really enjoyed investing. I still invest in lives. I enjoy investing in students. You know, you know I have lifelong friends from my students. I've been privileged to have some of my former students go to significant roles out there, and it's just you know mm-hmm. I'm proud to call them friends. So doing this a long time, but yeah, that's what we do. Linda and I, you know, we have, the best thing for us is to have eight students around our Amish dinner table and, um, and just have a conversation. We really enjoy that a lot. That's awesome. So I'm curious, can you, you, you touched on a little bit, but what was your, as a practitioner, what was, what was your career like? What happened in those years that looking back on them, uh, were there, were there, significant points or were there were there were there developments that happened during those years that uh, are instrumental for you i'm just curious about what your time was like as a as a practitioner well i think i I wanted to go out of my master's degree to go to work for an oil and gas company that was my master's degree was in oil and gas accounting but the industry was really in a downturn and my in my program they assigned you to an internship 
And so they assigned me to what at the big time was at the time was a big eight internship. And so I did that internship and was just captivated by it. It was awesome. I just loved what auditing felt like. And they threw me in. They let me do stuff. You know, I discovered in uh, you know a revenue recognition issue with a Fortune 500 company. They took me into the controller's office for that. You know, it turned out I thought they were just showing off to recruit me. Instead, they made me explain the whole thing. My sweat rings mm-hmm. were down to my to my <laughs> ribs. You know, talking to this guy, and uh, but it you know, just overwhelmed by how much I was learning. And I felt like I was swimming up really in terms of my learning experience. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't have any trouble saying yes to going out into public accounting when I went out. The thing was, Linda and I got married early, had children early. And so by that time, we already had two children. And I had my third child while we were in public accounting. And, you know, that, that experience kind of you know, it's it's hard to sit in those days in a hotel room getting a 20-minute call at night home with your children saying, when are you coming home, Daddy? Uh, mm-hmm. That was probably the hardest thing on me. I loved the work. I loved being stretched. Um, I, I was growing faster than I'd ever grown personally. But, uh, I, you know, I wanted to keep my marriage, and I wanted to be a good daddy, and I wanted to do the things that I thought were important for a lifelong type of decision. So I decided... Um, you know, at that point, I went back into industry first, trying to look at the work-life balance. But to be honest, after I had been in public accounting, even at a controller level, I struggled just to find it to be incredibly interesting for me because I just mm-hmm. wasn't getting the same level of push and challenge. Mm-hmm. But I really had been bitten by the bug when I had to teach to put bread on the table during the master's program. I'd been bitten by that teaching bug. And I thought, maybe someday I'd like to be back in a classroom. So... I just want to hear a little bit more about you mentioned the feeling as a as a big eight auditor. What what just talk a little bit more about that? Like, can you be more specific about like what those feelings were? Was it like the intellectual rigor or or just like the kind of the just the breadth of all the things that there were to learn? Just curious about what that was. Yeah, I think, you know, when I teach my students about understanding the entity and its environment, just that whole progression of understanding, wait, this there's this industry and there's this company and where it fits in the industry. And then there's these particulars about way the systems work in this company that make them vulnerable to X, Y, and Z. And that, you know, just kept unraveling for me. It was constant mm-hmm. just, you know, unraveling that for me – it was like solving a puzzle, right? It was like, yeah. how do we do this? Okay, let's let's fix this. How are we going to make this work? What? How do I solve this? I can remember one time being out on a client. I had no idea how to solve this problem of measuring throughput in some kind of a gas system or whatever, how I was going to okay. do that. And I was, back in those days, the firm I worked for was really one of those culturally figure-it-out firms, not fill-in-the-forms firms. And for me, that was ideal. And I can remember just trying to figure out how am I going to measure this to determine whether this is accurate throughput we're measuring here. And I can remember when I got taken out for my evaluation, I knew I had done well because they took me out to this really nice restaurant for lunch to do my evaluation on the client. And I thought, yeah, like, yeah, like, yeah, I can do this. Like, yeah, I can figure this out. And solving that, I mean, Caleb, that's that's what I when I say the feelings in me, the ability to do something that really added value, that provided 
protection for my firm, that I was getting it right. And then I also went through the, oh man, I'm completely overwhelmed. I can't do this feeling. That was harder to live with, but it also made me realize, um, wow, I'm doing something significant here. If I'm overwhelmed by this, I must be doing something really significant here. And what can I do to get ready so I can do this next time? Um, you know, I remember going in and having to do a three-year retroactive restatement on an acquisition when I'd been at the firm like two years kind of thing, you know, year and a half or two years and thinking I'm supposed to run this job with people from three offices or whatever, you know, and it's, how in the world do I do this? And that was the thing about public accounting. You don't like work your way up like you do in some corporations where you've got to incremental every two or three years. You just, they just throw you in the cold water. Hmm. Yeah. So uh, clearly, if they had taken you to lunch at Arby's, you would have known that you had done a horrible job. Because uh, I find I find Arby's to be an indicator of poor performance. So um, and really a punishment when you get down to it. This episode brought to you by Arby's. Arby's, go order, download the new Arby's app. We got the meats. We they got the meats. <laughs> we got Greg. the meats. That's Arby's. Uh, so. So, Mike, I loved what you were talking about uh, with B in terms of just the culture of the firm you're at, where it was a it was a go figure it out and do some real auditing, not just fill a file, not just fill out a form, not just check off a checklist kind of auditing. That seems like that's the way the audit firms are supposed to work, but not the way that they do work. I also thought it was interesting, and th this is something I, I I would love to hear you talk more about. There, one of your blog posts that I that I read in preparation for our talk today, you I think it was the one about um the lady from Theranos, where uh, you were saying that so much of today's uh, entrepreneurs and business world they they run on the model of fake it till you make it, and the problem is the faking it part, and. When, but at the same time, when you say that your company was stretching and they're taking you out to places where you're not, you don't feel necessarily comfortable and they're, they're making you do it anyways, there is, to me, I, I kind of feel like there's a fake it till you make it. Uh, like how, how do you balance that of like, you need to be stretched, but you also, but, but faking it till you make it is maybe not the way that, especially the accounting profession should operate. So how do you, in your mind, how do those two things balance each other out? Well, if you got a good hierarchical structure, uh, you, you can, you can handle that. You can build controls in. So for an example, that one example I was giving you, um, I was overwhelmed and they brought in someone else to help me do that. They were, they responded, they were sensitive to that. I could speak to them honestly and say, I mean, I can, I can do this, but I can't do this. How do I do this? They actually did bring someone else from another office to help me in that process. So if you're responsive in leadership and if the firms are set up to, you know, when we talk about, you know, adequate planning and supervision for audits, that's what it's supposed to be. There actually is supposed to be supervision, not just, you know, let the worker bees go and do whatever they come up with. You're supposed to have someone who's interacting with them. My firm did, and they had those things in place. It probably was one of the reasons they, at the time, dominated the Fortune 500 companies in terms of mm -hmm. their, even though they weren't one of the largest of the big eight firms, they were they were dominating in terms of the big companies. So that was my experience. I, I also, um, 
got feedback immediately. If I struggled, if I didn't do well, they told me the truth, you know, and they told me how to get better. And then they sent me off to the next adventure, right, with no pause. Um, (laughs) So I had to learn to cope with that emotionally. But I want to commend them. I really appreciated them, um, you know, for for actually stepping in when I said, I genuinely need help here. This is really more than I can do, that they didn't just ignore that. Gotcha. So it's almost like a, co- a component of humility with that, where it's like, you know, you're being stretched, but there's the humility, there's the transparency even of going, hey, here's what I'm doing. Is this right? Because again, with with your Elizabeth Holmes uh, post, I think one of the things you mentioned there, even with her, was that if she had just said, yeah, we tried this thing and it failed. And if she just acknowledged it, that likely she'd be, she'd still be a powerhouse CEO today. But the fact that she, she maybe hung on to the, to the fake it part longer than she should have or could have that that's without, without asking for help, without getting that feedback and that, you know, without being transparent, that was probably the, the Achilles heel for her. Would you agree with that? Without a doubt in my mind, she would be. There's no question in my mind if you just look at how she's wired. And the way she was able to make connections with people, with influential people in such a short time as a young person, that to me is, you know, it's a sure signal. Look, you're going to fail with three things and you're going to succeed at five things and you're going to be known for the things you succeeded at, right? You're not noted for your first time at Apple, you're noted for after you go back to Apple and turn it into this juggernaut, right? And so um, that's, if you had someone in your life to say, hey, hey, you know, we'll we'll try and raise some more capital here, but unless this thing's going to work, let's pack this in and let's see where we go from here. Because there are companies doing what she was trying to do. There are companies out there in the marketplace that are really advancing toward what she's trying to do. And you just couldn't do it with that box and you couldn't and lying about being able to do it with that and right. then entering into contracts with Walgreens while you're lying about that box being able to do yeah. that yeah. Yeah. becomes laughable at some point. It's really hard to backpedal from. Gotcha. This episode of Oh My Fraud is sponsored by Trimerit. It seems like every week a new questionable ERC mill pops up offering small businesses a way to get $26,000 from the government for each one of their employees. We've all seen Twitter ads, Facebook ads, ads in podcasts, ads on Instagram, ads on TV shows, and I even personally know a guy here in Utah who's been charged with fraud for false ERC claims totaling $11 million. These questionable ERC mills are coming hard after your clients. If they haven't reached them already, they will soon. And based on the stories I've been hearing from accountants, the IRS will be reaching out to them soon too. This is why when it comes to ERC, it's important to have the right people, the right process, and the right partner. Introducing Trimerit. Trimerit is a team of CPAs, engineers, and attorneys that function as an extension of your tax advisory team. They can help your clients with ERC, R&D tax credits, cost segregation, energy credits or deductions, and the work opportunity credit. And working with them is as easy as one, two, three. One, they offer a no-cost feasibility analysis. Two, they document all tax incentive studies to ensure that your clients meet all requirements. And three, they offer audit representation to ensure your clients aren't left hanging if audited by the IRS. 
To learn more about adding Trimerit to your team, head over to ohmyfraud.promo slash Trimerit. That's ohmyfraud.promo forward slash T-R-I-M-E-R-I-T. I just want to take one step back. Your transition to to teaching and and going and in, moving into the academic world, you kind of touched on that. I think you you were looking for more balance in your life, but then teaching. You, you said you the teaching bug is what bit you, and you kind of went down that path. I'm curious about the ethics component. How what's the story behind that? Like, is is there is there something from your practitioner career, or was there something that you were that you experienced uh, in your master's program or your PhD program that said where where you said, oh, that's it. That's that's the way I'm going to go. Just curious about the story behind that. Well, there's a couple of people involved there. Uh, first, I'd go back to my master's program. I had this professor who was an amazing mentor. His name is Ben Trotter. He came out of public accounting, had been oh, the equivalent of a principal or managing director type of person with one of the big eight and went back to a PhD program. And he was my auditing professor for graduate school at Texas Tech. And Ben is still a dear friend, still lives out in Lubbock. Um, But he was kind of my, I guess, my siren for the profession, for what a profession really ought to be. He was that Mm -hmm. guy. He really believed in the profession and believed in doing it right and believed we provided a a public service, that we were certified public accountants, not certified profitable accountants. And so he gave me, he infused that in me. And so we read back, I mean, we we were back in Mounts and Sheriff, the philosophy of auditing. Why is this, why is this that we're doing what we're doing? That's so I had those kind of roots in that. We even took an accounting history class as part of our master's program with another great professor, Herschel Mann. Those guys gave me a sense that the profession was worth preserving and worth saving. When I went back for the PhD, early on I met a, a marketing PhD student who was doing an ethics dissertation. And he was studying under a guy named Shelby Hunt, probably one of the top five marketing researchers of the last 50 years. Shelby Hunt's been a editor of both of the top two journals in marketing and also I think that's right and he also he just passed away this summer but Shelby was working with this PhD student and I loved what he was thinking about he was studying cognitive moral development and marketing the impact of Mm. cognitive moral development in the Kohlberg and rest kind of stream on marketing decision making and Uh, At that same time, Shelby Hunt was working on a general theory of marketing ethics with a guy named Scott Vettel, who became a professor at at Mississippi. And so I decided to do a paper on a similar vein in accounting. I thought I'd I'd certainly encountered moral decision-making in accounting, particularly in auditing. I had, you know, that there were a number of issues. And that developed eventually into a dissertation around that. But my focus on my dissertation, my former firm cooperated with me in getting me subjects. My study was on the ability of auditors to recognize an ethical issue in the first place, as opposed to the judgment that they reached on that ethical issue. Because if you don't recognize it, there's no reason you would reach a moral judgment on something you think is just, you know, a routine technical issue that you're dealing with, right? Mm-hmm. If you think right. of materiality, for example, as just, hey, this is just you select A or B, material or immaterial, as opposed right. to a moral judgment, you're going to treat it differently. So I studied ethical sensitivity. And the reason I eventually decided this is what I'm going to do my dissertation on is I tried to look at 
the types of topics that I would still be interested 25 years later in doing because I was in my early 30s and I hope to do this for a long time, to do research for a long time. And it was the thing that really captivated me, Caleb, was the idea of how do people make these judgments? Because I saw them making these judgments all over the place. How do they do that? And I thought this gave me a framework for trying to understand it. And so it was a time when that was just starting to be studied in the accounting profession, a guy named Larry Poneman, who went on to do a bunch of privacy stuff. You could, Lawrence, P-O-N-E-M-O-N, if you look him up, still doing privacy stuff. Um, he ended up, he was a partner with the firms, I think with a couple of the firms for a while, setting up ethics practices, but he finally moved into privacy, got rich, moved to Michigan. He's an amazing guy, but he was doing academic research in this area that really stimulated me, kind of launched my, my research career. That's a, it's interesting that you, that, that you're kind of, uh, your journey into accounting ethics was uh, part of the origin story involved marketing ethics, which I, I believe technically that's an oxymoron. Oxymoron, but I understand. I, but I do, <laughs> I think that that's still interesting. What, and it, it seems like, also it seems like you're, when you look at like the threats to, cause you said you want to, part of what you want to do is help preserve the accounting profession. And you see, I mean, and I guess this isn't startling, but you see the main threat to the accounting profession being being ethics. That if, if there's something that's going to bring down the profession or destroy the brand or destroy the profession, it's going to be the, the problems that we have, the ethical situations that we have in the accounting profession. Is that, is, is that correct observation? It seems likely. That seems to have been true in a number of other business types of settings, right? that what crashes and burns them is those moral choices that they make when they're technically incredibly proficient. And I think accountants and auditors now are technically more proficient than they've ever been. And they have the tools at hand to do things at a better level, at a higher level, at a lower cost, if they're willing to do it. Yes, the world's more complex, but the tools are way ahead of what the actual businesses have evolved into. So if we wanted to do it well, we could do it well. We really yeah. are capable of that. But it's hard to it's hard not to kiss up to clients. It's hard not to just say, I don't really want to bother them because I need to keep the revenue stream flowing here. So I don't want to ask that hard question. And so my my ethics class is done in a mini mester where our students are in the class for basically six weeks, four days a week. And it's, you know, it's intensive and they have to decide they have to come up with 10 or fewer principles to guide their professional life. They get to choose their outside reading, but they, they are talking to people from different viewpoints. But what they are doing is figuring out who am I, and I want them to preserve that for a lifetime. Whoever they are, I don't want them to lose that because of the profession. So yes, I think the profession is vulnerable because of the tendency to consider money more important than actually preserving the profession. And that's why I find the marketing ethics stuff really healthy and helpful to me. I teach it in my ethics class. Basically, the Hunt and Vattel model says, look, you're you're balancing two things in making an ethical decision, your duties in the situation and the consequences that are going to come out of the situation. That's really what you're doing. Now, that's determined in part by your virtue, your character, your faith, the things that exist, your culture in your firm, the culture, the business culture, all those things influence it. But when it comes down to it, 
you're considering, do I have a duty here? Do I need to step in here? Do I need to say something? Do I need, am I responsible for something? And then what's the outcomes if I do that or don't do that? I just find in the profession, overwhelmingly, people are consequentialists. They just calculate, they try and calculate some kind of greatest good. And usually it's for them. Occasionally, it's the greatest good for the greatest number, but usually it's just ethical egoism. What's it going to cost me? What happens if I do this? And there's a bunch of individuals doing that. Whereas the idea with the profession is we exchange, you know, when I, I look at the classical definition of a profession, it's not just you're really good at something. I mean, professional wrestlers are really good at something. That's one definition of a profession that you're really good at something. Another is that you have this common code of conduct that you apply, that you abide by. And you could almost argue that wrestlers do that too. But, but really, it means a different level in terms of code of conduct. But the third thing that doesn't, that really doesn't um, apply to any but the, a narrow group of professions is that you accept the responsibility or the duty to put the public interest or others' interests ahead of your own. That's what law is supposed to do. That's what medicine is supposed to do. You heal people rather than just get rich. And that's what we're supposed to do in the accounting profession. In order, in exchange for the monopoly of the audit, we promise to protect the public from those who would cause harm to them. And that's our job. Our job is to play defense. It's to minimize harm, not to maximize good. And I'm just saying, we're way more skilled at trying to maximize good, particularly for ourselves, and particularly maximize wealth for ourselves, than we are at trying to minimize harm. And minimizing harm is from accepting a duty. And I just say to my students, you have a duty. And if you want to be a consultant, just be a consultant. But if you Mm -hmm. want to be an auditor, you accept a duty to protect the public from the harm that takes place through things like Theranos, through things like FTX mm-hmm. through things that really harm people broadly. Yeah. So I want to ask you about two big ethical lapses that you've written about um, the KPMG steal the exam scandal and then the EY ethics exam cheating scandal, which Greg and I, we just recorded uh, an episode for it's not out yet, but it'll, it'll probably come out before uh, this conversation. But I just want to hear your thoughts on those two things. Uh, because in your writing, you seem especially troubled about these two instances. And maybe it's just the free or the excuse me, the recency of them. But just curious of, uh, about why you think those are so indicative of a, of a bigger problem. Again, humility is an important word. We could all do this. We could all do this. I could do this. But, and I love those firms. And I love, and so many of my friends are in those firms, not Mm -hmm. just people who recruit here that I value, but my former students populate Mm -hmm. those firms. Both of those events are abominations, as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. Both of those events show how far we are willing to go for how little and you know i i call them i just say tell people look you're bad consequence calculators you all think you're a rational man and you can calculate the consequences of what you're going to do but i'm telling you these folks in order to not have to study two hours for some kind of continuing education exam or an ethics exam 
they yeah. were willing to cause their firms to incur combined $150 million in fines, the reputation damages, several people going to prison as a result of it in the KPMG case, Mm-hmm. And a number of trash careers, a number of people who got fired, a number of people who were sanctioned in the firms, all of this stuff, so that you didn't have to study an hour to pass a one-hour CPE or a four-hour CPE or an ethics exam related to the CPA exam, which is probably open book anyway. Yeah, that, and that you all had to, you were willing to go to the trouble to design systems and to write code. That would enable you to pass with a grade of 25%. These types of things, I mean, obviously, I've been a professor a long time. I will say I've seen things. People are willing, people are very creative when it comes to finding ways around just complying and just following the rules. This episode of Oh My Fraud is sponsored by the South Carolina Association of CPAs, also known as SCA CPA. Hey, Caleb, you know I love diving into a juicy fraud case with you, right? But check this out. There's a place where accountants get together and talk shop and share knowledge about everything accounting related, including stories about untamed financials. Oh, tell me more, Greg. At every single one of my state CPA society events, there's a mountain of practical insights and experience. You get to meet other accountants, share knowledge, and even hear some firsthand accounts of financial intrigue. And here's the kicker, Caleb, you'd be hard pressed to find a better place for networking. I joined my state society as an undergrad during the depths of the great recession. And before I graduated, I had multiple job offers, all from firms that I connected with through my state society. Hey, that all sounds pretty good, Greg, but what else does a state CPA society bring to the table? Uh, They bring lifelong professional friendships, networking that'll turbocharge your career, and leadership opportunities. And on top of all that, your state CPA society is an unwavering advocate for you and for the profession. State CPA associations keep their fingers on the pulse of the constantly shifting business, regulatory, and legislative landscapes to keep you on the cutting edge and to protect the CPA profession. And as you know, protecting the profession means securing your livelihood. And hey, wherever you're tuning into the podcast from, be it the Palmetto State or some other state with a lamer nickname, there's a CPA association in your corner ready to ignite your accounting journey. If you're ready to find out why CPA Association membership is for you, head on over to ohmyfraud.promo slash SCACPA. That's ohmyfraud.promo forward slash SCACPA. But this was so egregious to me. My brother, you know, my brother worked for Enron and was not there when it all imploded. He was damaged by that. I, you know, I've had a long history with Enron. Um, this was the, those two events to me were as egregious as anything that's happened in the profession in my lifetime. And they just showed, you know, what I talked about with my big eight firm that had this hierarchical structure that would not tolerate that, that would come in and help you get better, but was not going to enable you to do wrong. That's, I'm not saying that's gone, but I'm saying these are egregious examples of where it's been voided or it's been the legs have been cut out from under it. What happened to KPMG at the top is scary, that it was the very top of the firm 
that was allowing this. And shout out to the Chicago partner, the woman who who said, hey, wait, no, we we can't do this. I can't use this information. She, who knows how long that would have gone on if she had not stepped up and shown moral courage in that situation. And she's still prospering, by the way. She's still in Chicago office. She's mm-hmm. running a practice for them. Um, but kudos to her for doing it. But that, so does that answer your question, Caleb? It does, I, yeah. I got yeah. really mad. I will say when KPMG <laughs> happened, yeah. I got really <laughs> mad well and i, it, and I mean really it, it, deeply angry one one thing i'll just mention and then i think greg has a question but mike you're you're a very good writer as someone who writes a lot i recognize good writing and i think what came through what comes through in your writing and we, we're, we're sharing a lot of your writing in the show notes for this episode but what comes through in your writing is you're you you are very vulnerable in your writing you aren't afraid to be you aren't afraid to be angry you aren't afraid to uh express things uh whether it's uh things about your faith or things about uh, death, death of friends. You've written about the deaths of some of your friends, like that kind of writing really comes through and that's what makes it so powerful. So like, yes, be angry. Definitely. That is, that is what I think that's how we learn. And I think that's how I think that it just underscores your principles and that comes through in your writing and it's certainly going to come through in your teaching. So I just want to commend you for that. Um, but well, Greg, I, I want to. Th- if, yeah. if I am angry, and ang- angry is a normal emotion, you know, perfectly I, normal. I want to be angry and not <laughs> sin about it. You know, I, I want to help. I want to be angry yeah. in a way that, when I speak, that it helps. So that would cause a firm to reconsider how you might do this, or that would cause my students to choose to do otherwise. Because we we graduate a lot of students here out of our five year program. We're going to graduate two hundred to two hundred and fifty into the profession a year. So, you know, in, in a decade, you're putting out, say, 2,500 people into the profession. You can, you can have an influence. You can change, you know, you can, you can change, you could change a firm. We're certainly going to have a presence in certain practices in certain firms, right? And you could make a difference. You could be that person who stood up like that Chicago partner. And that's what I want to give my students the courage to do. I mean, encourage literally means to give courage. That's what I want to do for my students is encourage them to be willing to step in and take a risk. Because I said, there's, there are jobs worth losing. You should always be willing to lose a job if that's what's yeah. necessary to maintain who you are. Greg and I have talked about um, that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that's actually, that's a couple of things I want to, I want to talk to, uh, get to, but I do, I do like what you're saying that you, like you, when you get angry, you're hoping that that's anger that gives energy that, that like, puts energy into into creating positive change. And I think that's important because when Caleb and I get angry about stuff, it's usually just to fuel nihilistic cynicism. So I think your your approach is probably a more noble slightly more productive. Now, slightly more productive. Can I say I th- something, Greg? I, I follow I follow you guys. Okay. I follow you guys. So you guys make me laugh. All right. You guys make me laugh. And it is another way. Humor is another way for you to bring about change. And it's always been a way to bring about change. And there are times that I'll introduce humor as well. But, you know, I get this window when my students are trying to figure out and make kind of long term moral decisions and figure out who they are. And so I have this different opportunity than you do around the souls of people to actually make them ask hard questions. So I'm probably more serious than I would be if we were, you know, just sitting together having a conversation. 
Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, I and I appreciate that you make me laugh. And going concern, I, I got to admit, I've been following going concern for a long time. And some stuff I think you should not be laughing at that. Stop laughing. But <laughs> the stuff, I mean, the stuff is creative. It's really creative, Caleb. You know, and you and and those who've collaborated with you, uh, Adriana, or, you know, different folks have been mm-hmm. really, you know, brought out. That you strip away the varnish off these things, and you make people actually encounter what's really going on. And I appreciate that. That's not really my role, and that's kind of not what I feel like God's called me to do. This, you know, my role is I have this opportunity because I also do research in the area, and I also write in the area. And I, and you're right. Bottom line ethics, which is my ethics blog on the Mays Business School website, you know, they've allowed me to write since 2010, and they've really. You know, I'm writing about some stuff that's touchy and, you know, I'm writing about people that are recruiting and they could have said, hey, that's it. No more blogs. But I appreciate the fact that they, you know, they allow me to um, to write to these issues and and be who I am. OK, so uh, in that vein, to take off the varnish of some uh, some very prevalent, I mean, not just prevalent, central ideas to the accounting profession. Uh, going back to something that you mentioned earlier, where you said it's really difficult for auditors to try to not just make their clients happy so that they don't interrupt their revenue stream. I've contended for a while, and I and I I, I think I picked this up from Ron Baker that uh, that independence, like the, the whole concept of independence, is just an illusion because we are being paid by you can't be independent from the person who's putting food in your kid's mouth and everything that we do, even, even the whole idea, you know, Starbanks Oxley having an independent, you know, audit uh, board in your, in your board of directors that chooses your auditor, things like that. I think it's all just pretense. Do you, do you agree? Do you disagree that, 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 that being truly independent is not, it's, it's, it's not even aspirational. It's unattainable. We're just trying to, create an illusion of, of independence as, as a, as a profession. Well, I'm teaching independence tomorrow in auditing class. So um, you, it looked like, no, no, just for the, for the <laughs> listeners, you just grabbed your headphones and it almost looked like you were just going to take them off and leave the, leave, uh, leave no, the let me, interview. So, end of interview. So, so I'm reading, I'm reading Max Bazerman's book complicit right now, um, which is, I recommend as a read. Um, but I, my ethics students all have to read his article from, late 90s with a couple of co-authors called The Impossibility of Auditor Independence. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he still holds to that view and understandably. So the idea of being independent in fact, I think, is structurally virtually impossible in the American culture, virtually impossible. But it's, I still think I want my students to aspire to it. And you can be more independent rather than less independent. And, you know, I want my students, what I also want to do is seed industry with a bunch of objective people. Well, even when you can't be independent, you can still be objective and say, hey, that's not gap. And if the profession was doing, and by profession, I mean broadly, all of us in the accounting profession, so Greg, in your role and the people who work for you and whatever, if you were actually doing the things the standards call for you to do, like being transparent with the auditor, that you're supposed to be um, not, I'll only answer that question if he or she asks, or I'm right. never answering that question. 
if we were doing as a profession the things we needed to do, then we would supplement things in a way that effectively brought about something that aspired to independence. But those folks in the in industry largely feel no responsibility, my experience mm. is, except in the most egregious circumstances, to do anything but comply with the boss on how we're going to handle this transaction, which puts the auditor out on an island. And the reality is it's incredibly difficult for to with anyone paying your bill to, you know, you're, you're providing your livelihood to go against them. I'm sure I mean, if you're sponsored by advertisers, same kind of thing. For me, when right. I do yeah. exec ed, when I go into exec ed, you know, it's hard for me to say, you know, like management was really stupid in this decision. Or, <laughs> hey, look, this is not what you guys are doing really borders on not being gap, right? You know, this kind of things are, to be skeptical in that setting is hard for me. I try, but it's really hard. So I, I understand. But so that's why, you know, we just couldn't do it. The answer is we couldn't do it. That's why we got a PCAOB. We just flat couldn't do it. It wasn't just Anderson couldn't do it. They serially couldn't do it in a lot of clients, not just, not just Enron or WorldCom or whatever. They serially couldn't do it. But none of the firms, it was hard. So I shouldn't say none of the firms. They differed on how well they did it. But I still, I'd still say, um, you know, I am not objective about the world's most beautiful woman. You're not, there's zero independence there, and I'm not objective at all. I have no desire to be. But I, I'm w- willing to be, even though it would pay off for me to treat certain people well, I'm able to be objective in a lot of settings. I'm, I'm objective about offensive coordinators at universities <laughs> and stuff, right? You know, I'm objective yeah. about that stuff, even though it may get me in trouble on Twitter. Right. Even, even, if, even though you're a diehard Orioles fan, if they're coaching bad, you're going you're gonna to be well, yelling yeah. at your TV or, from your couch. Yeah. Or Texas A&M football. We went five and seven this year, man. We got, we've got the biggest budget. We've got the, either the first or second biggest cash inflow into our athletic department of any university in the U.S. And we went five and seven in football this year. I'm more than willing to be transparently independent, <laughs> even though Texas A&M pays my freight, right? right, right I get a right, paycheck yeah, that says go. Texas A&M on it. But um, <laughs> it's really hard. It's really hard for CPA firms to do that. This is their livelihood. And what I would say is my prediction for a while has been that one of the big four will no longer be an audit firm by 2030. No, and it could be more nice. than that. That's that's Dang. the way I see it going rather than, you know, this, you know, sp- split up, you know, that, and I think we see that happening. I see that, you know, I've been saying that for a while, but I think the the earthquakes you're seeing right now, the rumblings going on are an indicator that you're going to have trouble finding people who are actually willing to audit these firms for all the things they're foregoing, right? You know, it's yeah. it's hard for an EY to forego all the consulting opportunities in high tech because they are the tech auditors, right? They are foregoing yeah. so many over a 10-year window, billions of dollars in potential fees because yeah. they can't. So uh, let's, uh, Caleb, let's make a note that we need to have Mike back on in 2030 to discuss the accounting <laughs> firm that died between now and then. So are you okay with coming back in? I'll, 
I'll let you know my beach address. Yeah, I, yeah. I will. Okay. I, right. it, it will not. It will not be an emotional issue for me in 2030. I will say. Yeah. Say, safe to say, I will not less, be an emotional issue for me in 2030. less anger in, in 2023. So, uh, so here's here's another thing, and you, you touched on it in one of the blog posts that I read. You touched on it here in in the interview as well. Is that basically the idea that it, if we're being honest with ourselves? everyone's vulnerable to ethical lapses and that and that um that that reminds me of the psychological uh, bias that's called bias blind spot where uh where where basically you say yeah there's these there's there's these uh, psychological principles that you know are going to prime people for poor behavior but I'm I'm smart enough at th- that stuff doesn't it's kind of like me with 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 advertising I go Advertising doesn't work on me. I'm I'm smarter than that. And then I see a commercial you pop that has over a your big, diet coke. <laughs> right, right, exactly. And I and I see a commercial for a big juicy hamburger, and I'm like, I, I think I need to try that juicy hamburger. So, um, so so with that, what I guess, what do you think is the best way, as an ethics researcher, as an ethics professor, what do you think is uh, the best things that we can do to protect ourselves from? the vulnerability that we all have towards ethical lapses. I think that even stretches beyond accounting, but obviously specifically since we're talking about accounting, what what do you think are the best things? Are there some silver bullets out there? Well, I have a, I'll be teaching in the classroom with the chief legal officer at a company next week. And he, he says, you need a board of directors. You need a personal board of directors. For me, what I have is an accountability partner. I have a guy that I'll meet later today we meet on Tuesdays, and he's allowed to ask me any question. So you need people that you are transparently honest with. And I say to people, to my students, you need a resource within the firm if possible, and you need one outside the firm that you can speak truth with about what's really going on. I mean, obviously within limits of confidential client information or whatever, but you need to be able to speak truth about what you're encountering. And I always offer to be the sounding board if they need a person outside that I'm willing to do that. But a personal board of directors helps. It doesn't guarantee anything. You know, all of our lives can collapse. Um, We can do stupid things. But when you're speaking to someone habitually, you say things offhand in the conversation that indicate your heart. And somebody says, hey, what's going on? Or what are you thinking about? Or are you serious about that? Those kind of comments can short circuit it going to you, this kind of spiral you go into that causes you to make decisions you never thought you would make. That's the first thing I would do is have, you ought to have a somebody. There ought to be somebody you can ask you any question. And I mean, other than your significant other, your spouse, whatever. And there ought to be, I think, preferably a broader set, three or four that you really trust and are truth tellers that won't just make you feel good. Gotcha. That's, that seems important. That seems, uh, yeah. Do, do you have uh, in terms of, cause I'm sure that you're telling your students to do that. I think you even said that you do that. Do you feel like that's, cause I'm trying to think, I, I mean, I got, I got some buddies who, who would ask me, but I don't really, they're not like on alert to say, say, Hey, are you stealing from your company? Hey, this is a pretty this is a pretty nice dinner, and you just picked up the tab. So, Greg, are you are you embezzling? No, no one's asking me that. Do you do you feel like people are uh, how how prevalent do you think that is even among the students that you've taught that that's a that's a a good idea to do that? 
Well, I think you look at the uh, what I see more prevalent among students is depression and isolation, and that's been accelerating okay. the last few years. But I think that's because we have these standalone demonstrate how wonderful I am lives, you know, mm-hmm. that are just just they they undermine culture broadly. You shouldn't be surprised mm-hmm. that our culture seems at war with each other because we live these standalone lives that um, we want to you you to celebrate me, you celebrate me and my individuality and, and you show this perfect life. I mean, I got five kids and, and I just think the pressure they live under trying to raise their kids to not be driven by what some other 12 or 13 year old or some other 16 year old, or even some other eight or 10 year old thinks about them. And so, um, there's not many. Yeah, I'm, I find relatively few. Probably more in my setting here at Texas A&M. I find a lot of grounded kids here. It's been pretty fun to teach here. One of the reasons I've stayed here so long is that I really find a set of kids who are grounded in who they are and really don't want to lose that during the college years. But there are more and more who are struggling with that isolation. And so it's not natural. And so that's why I, that's why I tell them. You need to do this. And I also, in the ethics class, I put them in accountability groups. So I oh. assign them randomly oh, into groups of four or five. And during the entire course, they read each other's reading summaries each week because they have to do 300 words or so as a reading summary of what they read and what they took from that week's reading in their outside reading. They read each other's and annotate that and comment on that. And I don't grade it until I get the annotated version of that writing. So that makes them, they're talking to people who are strangers for the most part, because they're not self-selecting into those groups. And so you've got these groups where somebody's reading, somebody's for their ethics reading, somebody's reading Siddhartha or somebody, somebody's reading Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, somebody's reading C.S. Lewis, somebody else is reading Harry Potter, someone else is reading the Quran or the Bible or whatever, you know, they're reading a variety of things and then having to speak to each other about it and what's in common what do we see here what 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 do you believe why do you believe that because um, I want people to have convictions about why they believe things and not just um, I believe that you know that they're this is the reason I order my life this way so <clears throat> I know you got to go soon I'm not saying this is the last question, Greg, so don't jump on me about that. <laughs> but it's my last I got, question. I got, I got one more. I got one more we got to get to. Okay, we'll, get, we'll, we'll go quick. When you wrote about Harambi, the, the gorilla at the Cincinnati Zoo that had to be uh, shot because of uh, the, young, the child that had fell into the enclosure was in danger, you, you were quoting, I believe, a colleague that said, well, no one's blaming the gorilla because that's what gorillas do. And then you wrote how, you know, some people explain kind of these cheating scandals and things is like, look, humans are biologically predisposed to like make these kinds of errors. Right. And you said that you disagreed with it. Number one, because it's silly, but number two, it's kind of an abdication of responsibility. And so I guess what I'm saying is, I guess my question is, or what I, what I want to hear you talk about is why is telling people, and I'm, I'm kind of over, I'm kind of being glib or oversimplifying it a little bit, but like, why, why does, telling people not to cheat over and over and over again. Why is that worthwhile? And why does, and, and why are you optimistic in terms of like, if you, if you are optimistic about the future, how does that move forward? I guess. 
Well, I could be wrong, but I think people are more than they think they are. I don't think mm-hmm. they are just their biological predispositions. Yeah. And I don't think we'd have the level of ordered society that we have or have maintained for centuries if people hadn't concluded they're more than purely their biological predispositions. Now, I'd, I'd rather know more than less about my biological predispositions or how that changes over time or how, you know, I'm not against the scientific discoveries that lead to the conclusions of some reached that we just, you can't make yourself do this. I think that's different from like this impossibility of auditor independence. You can devolve into, you can't control your behavior at all. You can't change what you do. I just, I just have to do this. That's, that's my argument is no, uh, no, you don't have to. You still have choice because what the predisposition gives you is say, a world of no choice. Who on earth wants that? Wants a life where you have no choice, where all you can do is devolve into what you are destined to become because of your biological predispositions. Without denying science, I would say, I think there's ample proof. And I've known lots of these people that you can be somebody fundamentally different than your biological predispositions and that you can withhold yourself from just calculating what's the greatest good for me because that's essentially what that kind of argument the biological argument makes is it just justifies ethical egoism in fact it goes to psychological egoism you ought only to consider what is good for you because it's impossible Mm -hmm. for you to know what would be good for someone else and you have Mm -hmm. no role in judging that though you look at any news story between 5 and 6 p.m. and you see people on the streets and you see people in subways and people shooting up and you see tents and you see sex trafficking and you see all kinds of things you say yeah i'm pretty sure that's not what people prefer i probably do have some idea that that people would prefer something different and so i think it's just a case of recognizing who you are that you now i happen to believe in a god that designed that stuff into you and you know what let, let me be, let's be humble. I could be wrong. I could be dead wrong on everything. But as, as I would tell a student, you know, all my chips are on red on that one, that I, you know, I think there's evidence for design. I think there's significant evidence for design. It's not just purely just, I'm taking a leap here. I think there's significant evidence for design as opposed to purely this being a random uh, set of effects. And so, Based on that, if that's true, and people live as if it's true, they never live their whole life as if it's just biological effects, because when they walk into Arby's, they expect to be served, then (laughs) I'm going to say, I'm going to call boo on you if you say it's just a biological predisposition, because you don't live one day like that, and no one I know, including my students, lives one day like that. So... That's, you know, for me, I don't think it's irrational. I think it's perfectly rational to live as though we were designed in a, to make a difference and to live differently and to choose if we wanted to do that. And I'm saying you have, if you want to be in the accounting profession as a CPA, you have a duty that you have accepted to choose to protect the public. Right on. So you, you have to go, but before you do, just really quick. Uh, you, you mentioned virtue before, and I know you're a professor of ethics, and I know you're familiar with, uh, with Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics. 
So I thought real quick, you and I could play a little game, just a quote off while we'll go back and forth just with quotes that we've memorized from Nico McKeon Ethics. I'll go first. Freedom is obedience to self-formulated rules. Okay, you go. Uh, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to okay. go. Sorry. You got me. You got me. Okay. I, right. I'm not going to go. But I, I it, yeah, I should, I should be able to, I should be able to play that game with you for about 30 minutes for sure. Yeah. Well, um, I, we were, and I, we were I, going I, through some of the cardinal virtues in class yesterday, but thanks. <laughs> thanks for, uh, thanks for making it fun. Yeah. I know you think that would be really fun for me and I appreciate that. Um, but well, I, I, I will say this, I, I think, I think appealing to virtue, I think appealing to the kind of person they want to be is important. And I think there are ways to inform them in virtue ethics, for example, in the median. When I say you want to be, you know, say, let's say with courage as a median between foolhardiness and cowardice, right? I'm teaching students moral courage in the, in the setting, which doesn't mean burn the whole thing down. That would be a going concern approach, right, Caleb? Burn the whole thing down. I'm just kidding, Caleb. Just kidding. Burn the whole thing down, right? And I'm not saying shut up and just do your job, put your head down, go hide. I'm saying there's something here and let's model it for you. And so this semester, I'll get Tyler Schultz in there to model moral courage. I think he's spoken the last two springs to my students and I think he will again from Theranos as one of the two whistleblowers at Theranos, mm-hmm. whose grandfather is George Schultz, the former Secretary of State. Um, Sharon Watkins has agreed to come in, the Enron oh, whistleblower. I've never yeah. had her in the classroom. She's agreed nice. to speak in my class. Cynthia Cooper and Glenn Smith from WorldCom are planning mm-hmm. to be in my class this semester. I, will, I want them to see what it looks like. What, what's Aristotle talking about when he talks about courage? It looks like this. It looks like an ordinary human being who lost their job or could have lost their job or was threatened or whatever and did it anyway because they felt they had a duty to do it. That's what it would look like, right? And so uh, maybe on the next time we talk, uh, we, we can go back and forth um, cool. And I'll, how about how about I'll do C.S. Lewis quotes with you, and you do okay. You, okay. you do Aristotle with me, or whatever. That works. But, uh, you know, I, I would. You know, I'd love to to do it again. I think this is really stimulating to me, and and really helpful for me to think out loud about why it is I do what I do because I've been doing it a long time, and there are days I feel like maybe I, you know, have I worn out my welcome on this. But I, I love what I do, and I love investing my life in my students. And I'm grateful to have the chance to – I live in an environment where there are, you know, there are things like this, podcast, or there's Twitter mm-hmm. or whatever. I can, I can have a blog. I can speak into these issues instead of just being a voice in the classroom. So I'm grateful. And I'm grateful Sound- for your time. Thanks. Thanks a lot for yeah. having me on. Yeah, of course. Thanks, Mike. Okay, that was great. Greg, did we learn anything? We learned something, right? All kinds of stuff. We absolutely learned some things, Caleb. I learned that contrary to popular belief, professional wrestling is not actually a profession, which is bullshit, Dr. Schaub. That's right, Dr. Schaub. Sunday night, you and me at the Tacoma Dome, we'll see who's in a profession and who's in a hospital bed. It's going to be the rumble and the revenue recognition, the fight for the credits on the right. You be there or you don't be there without ethics. Challenge extended. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. Enough said about that. Enough said about that. <laughs> um, I have something, Greg. 
How about yeah. that? I think, and let me know if you disagree with any of this, but I think, and other people that we've had on the podcast have, have kind of expressed similar things, but I think Mike Schaub expressed it about as clearly as anyone I've heard. He believes that the auditing, the auditing profession specifically, I won't talk about accounting writ large, but auditing professionals specifically are duty bound professionals, right? So like, you know, how lawyers take O's and like physicians take O's, like do no harm, those kinds of things. Like he, he clearly stated that he believes that that's what auditors are and that's an ideal. Okay. And what it underscored for me is just how far short auditors are falling of that ideal. Like when right. we when we when we bring up these stories and these examples of like what's happened at audit firms, it's clear that you know Dr. Schaub and I know there's other people out there that think this, but like they want auditing to be on this pedestal. And I think in an ideal world, ideally that would be the case in practice, but it just simply isn't the case in practice. And he talked about that too. Like the, the, I don't, what did he say? Uh, he not certified public accountants, but certified profitable accountants or something like that. Right. Where, right. Yeah. Something like that. That's the, that seems to be the, the profession's attitude about it, but I don't know what you think about that. Yeah. Well, I, I absolutely agree with you with that in that, in that I, I feel like, our profession is not duty bound. We're checklist bound. And that's, <laughs> yeah. that's more of the practical side of things. But in, in Dr. Schaub's defense, I know I could tell so clearly from our interview that he did not take his role as, uh, as someone who's creating the next generation of accountants. He did mm. not take that lightly at all. Mm-mm. And so the fact that he's teaching his students yes. and, and give, saying, hey, you better expect to be a duty-bound accountant, I think that's great. Yeah. And even his story about being at a firm that wasn't that, that very much was like, let's do it right, not let's yes. just you know fill out a form and, and, and make a fat file on this but let's actually do it right. Those kind of things, I think are, those are going to, you know, for, for his sphere of influence, I think those are going to be very influential and are going to uh, make a difference for at least that cohort of professionals that he churns out from his institution. Yeah. I, I think you are right. I think you're right. But yeah, the, no, the, to the extent that he, he has influence as an instructor, as a professor, yeah. like I think, yeah, for to to like instill in his students that they need to be clear-eyed about what they think is right and what they think is wrong and like he said recognizing recognizing an ethical conundrum when they're presented with one even that is something that i think is super important that probably just gets taken for granted yeah um anyway, yeah, yeah not every not everyone not you know not every ethical ethical conundrum involves a shady looking dude with a with a with a sack with a dollar sign on it you know and trying to hand right. it to you you know the good ones do but not all of yeah. them are like that right anyway greg i have a question for you um what your i thought you asked a very good question about independence and whether it was in your words an illusion and whether or not it, in in so many words whether or not he agreed with it or not. And um, his answer did not surprise me. He doesn't think it's an illusion. 
but I'm just curious as right. now, now that you have the floor all to yourself, like, what did you think of his response? Well, um, I thought I, it felt like the most poignant part of his response was when he was talking about how he's not independent from Texas A&M, but he can still be objective about the Texas A&M football team coaching staff. Yeah, right, and, right. And I and and it's funny cuz you kind of go okay, that tracks. I you know, I can see what but but I think that there's some holes in that and 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 here I'm going to try to just whittle down and tell you as concisely as I can. My whole it, this this is my broad philosophical uh structure for ethics within the accounting profession. We have we have three main ethical uh, responsibilities as accountants. That's to be independent or sorry to be, yeah, to be independent, objective, and to have integrity, right? Those are the okay. three, the three pillars of accounting ethics are those three things, but let's, let's trace them through. You can't have integrity if you don't have objectivity, which I think Dr. Schaub would say, that's not correct. I can have integrity without objectivity. But what I would say is you, that's, possible theoretically, but nobody's going to trust your integrity if you don't have objectivity. Do you see what I'm saying there? Yep. And then take that one step. Then you can do that with the next layer and you can say, well, you have to be independent, but you can't be independent unless you're objective. And that's what, that's exactly what Dr. Schaub said is he said, oh no, I can be objective even though I'm not independent. And I would say this, I'd say, but no one is going to trust your objectivity if you're not independent. So it's not so much, can you be these things in reality? It's, will people trust that you really are those things without this, without this structure? So you can't, no one's going to trust you being, having integrity if you're not objective and no one's going to trust that you're objective if you're not independent. So ergo by the law of syllogism, no one's going to trust your, your integrity if you, if you're not independent. And so back to the coaching staff thing, I would Mm -hmm. also say that he can sit there on his couch on Saturday morning and shouted, that goddamn offensive coordinator made him run the 22 red and it should have been the 44 Ohio blitz. And it's not going to cost him his fucking job if he does that. And and I think he I think he knows that. I think as loud as he as he complains about his offensive defensive coaching staff, he's not going to lose his job as a professor of accounting at Texas A&M. But if somebody gives an adverse opinion to a client that they've had for years and they get tens of thousands of dollars of revenue from every year, that's a I think we're talking about completely different ballpark when it comes to objectivity and independence. Gauntlet thrown. Well done, Greg. Anyway, you can follow Dr. Schaub on Twitter at Mike Schaub. That's M-I-K-E-S-H-A-U-B. And uh, also, if you want to read some of his writing, uh, you can find all his blog posts at maze.tamu.edu backslash ethics. And there's all kinds of stuff in the show notes that we picked out. Yeah. Check out the show notes. Always check it for a deeper understanding of our content. Dig through the show notes. <laughs> well, that's it for this episode. <laughs> Remember, never get involved in the land war in Asia and never go head to head against me quoting Aristotle. And also remember that if your boss takes you to Arby's for lunch, you might want to start looking for a new job. Absolutely. So, Caleb, uh, where can people find you out there on the internet? 
on Twitter at CNewquist and LinkedIn backslash Caleb Newquist. Greg? Uh, same thing. Uh, Twitter at Greg Kite, uh, LinkedIn, Greg Kite CPA. Uh, and also e- feel free to email me, Greg at gregkite.com. That's my, uh, that's my email. I read all my emails and I'll get back to you if you shoot me a note. Or if you have feedback for us or the show, email us at ohmyfraud at earmarkcpe.com. Oh My Fraud is written by Greg Kite and myself. Our producer is Zach Frank. If you like the show, leave us a review or share it with a friend. Uh, Reviews and ratings help people find the show. So do that. Rate the show. Please. review. Yeah. Please. Yeah. And be sure to subscribe on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And for the accountants out there, if you listen on Earmark, you can earn CPE, including ethics credit for this episode. Yep. Just do it. Do it. You need to. Join us next time for more avarice swindlers and scams from stories that will make you say, Oh, my fraud. Oh, my fraud.